Welcome to The Lightest Tread, the official podcast of Soul, where we speak to extraordinary and ordinary people who do ordinary and extraordinary things that are good for their bodies, good for the planet, and typify the soul of adventure. I'm your host, Paul Morn Brown, and my guest today is Amathan Sevaraja. As a boy, Amathan survived civil war in Sri Lanka before moving to Canada with his family. His life has followed many varied paths, including academia, advocacy, and activism, but the paths he has most passion for are those he can follow across continents one step at a time. Amathan has through-hiked many of the world's most famous long-distance trails and offers a nuanced and considered perspective on what it is to through-hike in the socio-political context of the modern world. Listeners can get 15% off YourSoul.com by entering the code JUNEBUG15 at checkout. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please do take a moment to rate it and subscribe. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Listen up, folks. It's time for the lightest trip. Hey, we're rolling with Amathan Sebaraja. I say that right, hey? Yep, yep. Um, I actually recently been reading an article about, um, um, I don't know if you've, this is just a little preamble, like uh, a while back, Hassan Minaj went off on Ellen for mispronouncing his name. And then uh, oh, recently wow. another comedian went off on like local audience uh, for anglicizing his name, his South Asian name. And he's like, well, this <laughs> is what I've been called all my life. So I always tell people I have no idea what my name actually sounds like in English. My mom calls me one thing. My family calls me something else. Almost always someone puts an R in there somewhere. There's no R. So I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. What does your mother call you? Um, she calls me Amitten, um, okay. which, is a, which is not that easy if you don't have that um, the inflection mm. in your tongue. Growing up speaking a language that specifies the T sounds. Um, yeah. My partner Valerie, like she struggles struggles with that that particular bit, and she's married yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in South Africa, as you may or may not remember, but I grew up watching <laughs> Sri Lankan cricketers. Um, one of whom was <laughs> Mutai Muralitharan was the was yeah. the anglicized way of saying it, but yeah. Um, yeah, always a mouthful for the commentators. Power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. Anyway, welcome. Thanks, thanks for joining me. Um, we're, you're based on the island now, on Vancouver Island. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm in Vancouver Island, pretty close to or at the edge of Nanaimo at the moment. Oh, um, nice. All over the BC. It's been, uh, it's been a journey the last couple of years. Yeah, during COVID, I saw you were sort of isolated. I, I can't remember exactly where, but next to a beautiful lake. I remember feeling quite jealous of you out in the, the wilderness while we yeah. were city bound. Yeah, deep in the, the bowels of the Kootenai Lake, surrounded by glaciers and having grizzly bears for neighbors. It's pretty, it's pretty nice. Not cell service wow. though, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe we should start by just sort of talking about your credentials as a through hiker. <laughs> Not, not that they matter necessarily, but just to give listeners some perspective on, on where you've been and, and what you've done. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I guess I, I walked a few miles. Um, <laughs> um, I started with the Appalachian Trail, I suppose, like a, a, my first real sort of through hike. Um, since then, 
I've uh, completed the Tierra in New Zealand, on both islands, of course. Um, the Arizona Trail, the Great Divide Trail from Waterton National Park all the way to Mount Robson, which is incredible. Um, mm. About just about 1,200, 1,100, 1,200 miles on the Continental Divide Trail. Um, and recently, I just finished uh, trekking the, the Pacific Crest Trail. So about seven or eight thousand miles in there somewhere. So the Great Divide Trail is the it's on the it's what the sort of Canadian section of the Continental Divide Trail. Is that do I understand um, correctly? Well, Great Divide Trail is its own entity, like the Great Divide Trail Association is its own entity, uh, and it is pretty okay. like exclusively in Canada. But um, the CDT, the the Connell Divide Trail, is pretty unique in the sense that it's one of the only. It is the only long distance trail in the US that has um, what you would call a dual terminus. So you can either start in Canada or in the US. Uh, in fact, mm. most what you would call the, the, the old school OG southbounders who would say that the, the proper, the purest, whatever, or at, mm. at least what I think the most weather friendly approach to have a continuous through hike on the CDT would be to start in Canada and go southbound in July. So that uh, you hit that, it's tough right off the bat. Uh, it's a cricket term, by the way. I don't know if you ever noticed that right off the bat. People say it all the time, but I don't know if they ever realized that that's a cricket term. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, you yep. start at uh, the Canadian border at Waterton National Park, and then um, you do this cool little video. Um, it's such a strange thing. You do a video interview with a border agent remotely, and this is before... Uh over times in some ways uh, you do a video interview and then they give you a two hour window to cross into the u.s <laughs> there's no wow. one there what? you just walk from canada to the u.s pretty much from alberta to montana just go for a walk <laughs> next thing you know wow. you're on the other you're, you're the other side of glacier it's pretty cool amazing and yeah so how do you do the video interview? I mean, I'm fascinated by this. Just like on a phone, or you um, pull it on a yeah, on a cell phone. It, um, there is a there's a, a a person at the crossing as well on the road, but it's just on the other side of Waterton National Park, and it's log ride. And if you're through hiking, it's it's almost the logistics of getting into a terminus is hard not hard enough on any given trail, except perhaps the Appalachian Trail. Um, but uh, this one, you know, a stranger can't just pick you up and drive you through the border. <laughs> It's just not going to happen. So, and then you can't exactly walk, get dropped off the border and walk there either. Uh, but in the old days, like people would go to Chief, um, Chief, which is on the glacier side of things and the U.S. side of things, when they finish there or start there, uh, they would dip around, come into um, Waterton. Um, what I did was um, I basically set up a phone interview. There's a there's an app called Mobile Roam, and you just do a video interview and enter credentials and they're like right you have from 9 a.m to 11 30 p.m to make your this five mile head to the to the treaty agreement monument the southern or northern monument whichever you will and then you walk over so if you went south you'd go on the cdt if you went north you'll be on the great divide trail hmm. also at the border of waterton lake sure and so i mean that's the the Walking north to south, as you said, is relatively unique in that on um, the other major trails, the PCT and the, and the Appalachian Trail, 
most people will walk uh, south to north. Most people walk south to north. It's just been traditionally that's been the way on, especially on the Appalachian Trail. It used to make a lot of sense. Um, a lot of it, I feel, is inertia in some ways because uh, that's how it was done and that's how you do it. And sometimes the mile markers are set up that way, you know, like the infrastructures have set up that way in, in some ways. Uh, and of course, you can never underestimate the power of um, just sheer inertia, you know. Um, and the weather window, on the other hand, for each of those tra three trails and specifically, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty unique. So if you were to start a southbound hike, your time span is a lot longer on the AT. Uh, you would, of course, start at a very difficult section. You'd have to go up Mount Katahdin, which is a pretty difficult mountain to climb, uh, and then come down and then go through Maine, which is arguably uh, throws everything the AT has on you in one state. And then you'd have to take the time off when you start getting closer and closer to fall because uh, you can't come down Katahdin until whenever it opens, like June or something. Uh, so you can't really start that southbound hike until June. Uh, same for CDT. Uh, snowpack determines how when you can start a southbound hike. You're simply not going to get through those immense and wild places in Glacier National Park uh, in the middle of a snowstorm or if the, if the snowpack is really heavy. Uh, so July, June is our, like you could June's probably too early, but July is like a good time to start. Early July is a good time to start. That's when I started, and then you southbound. But then, then you hit that like you get the difficult bit out of the way on the CDT, and then you start hitting just the greatest weather. Like you get to Colorado at the, at the right time. You get to New Mexico when it's colder. The waters better. Bugs are a little bit less. Yes, you are in vigorously bear season, but there's really no avoiding bear season on the CDT. Um, PCT, on the other hand, if you start at southbound hike, um, yeah, again, very tricky, especially now with the wildfires and uh, the impact of like human impact on trails, both in terms of like the trail itself, but also the environment makes it harder and harder, I think, to do uh, a continuous uninterrupted trail. I, I don't know for how much longer that's feasible to have a continuous uninterrupted trail starting north. Um, Flip-flop, meaning start from one end flip around, have a little bit more flex in your travel plans is probably more sustainable going forward uh, for for all sorts of reasons, uh, particularly for the impact that we have on these trails. Um, but yeah, the weather, weather determines how you should go. Um, and it's probably a good advice not to just follow what everybody else is doing and do what's best for you on that trail. Yeah, the, the issue of flip-flopping and and um, how to approach managing weather and natural well disasters, I guess, um, in terms of wildfires. It's a conversation I had with Morgan Brosnihan, um, Blaze Physio, who you actually put us in touch with originally. That was great. Um, yeah, crazy to think that we are at a stage where there are communities of people who who have specific dreams and, and hopes that um, just may never, may not be feasible to realize anymore moving forward um, due, to, due to our impacts on, on the planet as a species. I actually wanted to speak to, I mean, you were talking about being surrounded by glaciers and uh, being in the wilderness. And I wanted to pull up something that you had in your very first email to us at Seoul. There was a, there was a paragraph that you wrote in that mail, um, which 
hit a particular chord with me. Um, and I wanted to read that quickly. Sure. Um, it went like this. Simply put, people like me cannot readily imagine what is possible in outdoor rec recreation. Being an immigrant and coming from a South Asian background where education and career ambitions are given high premiums, I am quite attuned to the stigma of choosing mountains. I continue to grapple with the perspective that out there in the wild, I'm throwing my life away. It is a story familiar to so many young people of color, regardless of aptitudes. And that point really struck home to me, um, partly because I, partly because of my personal experience having moved to Canada in order to pursue um, well, snowboarding really was the, was the number one thing that brought me out here. So the mountains, um, a life that I could live surrounded, surrounded by the mountains. Um, and it made me reflect on the fact that Western white people um, have always kind of glamorized exploration and adventure to some extent. Um, and that, and I guess the socio-political sort of sphere in which we exist has allowed us to continue to do so. Um, because if you live in a place of relative comfort and, and, and privilege, um, you have the ability of, you know, recreation can take up more space in your mental sphere, I guess. Um, and, you know, going on adventures might may not be every sort of parent's explicit uh, approval. Um, but there's sort of cultural precedent for, for, um, adventure and time spent in the wild for its own sake. Um, and when you spoke to that, the sort of stigma of, of a life spent in the mountains rather than pursuing a, a career or, or whatever else it might be, that really struck home to me. Um, and I guess that's just a way of sort of foreshadowing the conversation that I, that I'd like to sort of focus on, um, sure. with, which is the role. Um, I don't know if you consider it your mission or if it's, if it's, um, maybe it's a, maybe it's a good question, but you, you are very vocal, um, in terms of spreading awareness um, around being a person of color in the outdoors um, and the the difficulties that you encounter, I don't know. Maybe you could you could start off by by telling me um, how did how did the journey sort of evolve for you? Yeah, I wrote that email a long time ago when I was. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I accidentally like ran into um, a store, uh, an outdoor store, the famous Outdoor 76 off the piece at the Appalachian Trails that had sold foot bats and just since a lot have changed in terms of how I can staff them. And I want to put that aside, like to, to some of the points that you were talking about in terms of the, the, the evolution, I suppose, the, the progress and the journey on a personal color on the outdoors. Um, I think from... from my role, my specific part in this much larger story is a little bit 
has a couple of different elements or dimensions, right? Like, so I was born in Sri Lanka and I was mm. born into a coastal small village. Like, you know, like, like we'd still have to go to town to get to school. It's a colonial system that we had there. So we take the main road and we bike up and, um, my, my dad, uh, later in his life, like used to have like rice fields. So we would go to these, what are quote unquote jungles where on the one, the other side of the jungle were um, gorilla camps. And then we'd have to go to military checkpoints to get like, I mean, 30, 40 military checkpoints in a matter of like 50 kilometers to get to this mm. really, really remote place, uh, even from where we lived. Um, so that part of like, going out into a space that was not habitated habitated by um, everyday civilians as opposed to like a, a covert place for whether it was uh, rebels hiding in the, in the jungle, having their bases there, uh, where or it was like rice fields in the middle of the jungle. Like I used to go there quite a lot with my dad. So it's like all these, like he would sometimes take me on his bicycle. Like I know bike packing is like a big thing and people talk about it's like, oh, it just happened. But people have been cycling, cycling, long distances for work and everyday life people have been walking <laughs> if there's one thing that classifies as human beings we stood up on two legs and started walking you know mm. Mm. amongst other things and we were doing that in much different context so I, at the time i would never would have considered any of those things as a me as a person of color doing those things i just liked being in those places with my dad and seeing sure. seeing the lush forest and being in the forest and and see how different that life was. So, um, but in the in the city, like when I was still in Sri Lanka, I would, you know, like I vi vividly remember once missing the school bus that my mom intentionally pays a lot of money to pick me up because um, it's pretty far away, uh, where my my village home to the school bus, and I would just skip the school bus just so that I could walk home. Um, and there's at least four military or army checkpoints at, that you have to go through. Uh, and if you go, if you're on a bus, you have to get off the bus and go through it and then get on back on the bus again and then go back home. And I just like hated that, but I'm like, I'm just going to walk to all of them. So like my journey is more or less uninterrupted. And I, I used to do that as a six year old or seven year old walking by. And this one specific moment, um, you know, like the weather, like a very distinct moment of like the world's gliding. Like I was walking through this lush little, back area above it's in the fields in the valley by the by the lake by the lagoon rather and up above the cliff was the army camp so i'm walking below it so essentially bypassing that checkpoint but just prior I, after i got home i just realized i had walked through what was what, what would now be considered one of the largest attacks on the police station and i see that i was walking through it as that attack was unfolding uh, which is a pretty, pretty like stark reminder. Like, I, you know, much later in my life, when I look back at it, like, um, <laughs> you're just out there because you just wanted to, but then life happens around you in in really, really dramatic ways, and you're never really, you can never really take yourself outside from that, no matter what you think that you're doing to distance yourself from the everyday reality of things. And that's what it's like going out on the trail. It's not like, you know, it's not like you get to step through a boundary and then I'm out there in the nature. Like mm. that doesn't happen that way. And I think that's especially palpable for people 
like me, who come from scenarios like me, who are pretty hyper aware of that. And mm -hmm. out here in the West, like there's this idea that like, if I stepped over and went up to a mountaintop, life no longer happens there, it's just the mountains. But that's, that's, a, that's a total artificial uh, delineation of like life versus escape. And there's just no escape. Like um, it might give you context, a bit of like critical distance, quite literally distance to a vantage point to look, have a, a micro or mic macrocosmic view of like what's going on around you and within you. But it's never really an escape that you get to go over. Uh, and that's become more and more refined. Uh, in New Zealand, for example, uh, when I got to be on the Awa with the Maori, you know, like it was super telling at that point, if it wasn't already obvious to me, but at that point that yeah, people have always been here and these places aren't wild. This is home. It has always been home to someone. The creation of wilderness as a wild space is pretty much, an, not pretty much, it is an invention. Mm. It's a critical, discursive, uh, ultimately colonial project. Um, and every time we want to make that um, easy sort of separation like you really have to be aware of like what you're doing like uh, it's, it's not an escape it's a it's a it's it's having the privilege to step outside into from one paradigm to the next and if you're uh, and i think it would be wise to use that space to look back and have a bigger view as like where you are and why you're there as opposed to treating it as simply as an escape all the time hmm and that's how it's been. Wow. Yeah. Um, really interesting because I imagine so many people who undertake big through hikes um, do so with the explicit intention of getting an escape of sorts um, and in the hope of... Um, in the hope of overcoming some trauma, perhaps what I'm hearing you say is that the value in it might be to give you a, sh a shift in perspective, but it's important to realize that that shift in perspective doesn't mean that it's that you're not still very much living in the same, it's the same existence happening in a different place. It's just sort of a spatial shift. Yeah, you know, like I, when you're saying that, like I, I just couldn't help smiling inwardly about thinking about the time Marianne Pippin tried to convince the ants to go to war <laughs> against Sauron and Saruman. And they're like, and the ants say, uh, you know, like we take a long time to decide whatever they don't want to deliberating. And then Mary simply was mm. like, aren't you part of this world? And then it wasn't until uh, Treebeard goes and sees his kin get thin kin and acorns getting burned by saruman that like they immediately decide that that's this affects them but the key thing to realize that like it doesn't matter whether you realize it or not something what's going on around you it's, it's affecting you it's affecting you whether or not you realize that or not mm -hmm. like you can you can walk through a trail through a burn section and completely ignore the the environmental consequences that have led to that place being burned Mm. And it, and but the scientific, social, ethical reality of that scenario doesn't require you to require your understanding. It is there whether you realize that or not. 
it is your job to figure that out in your relationship to that. And you can totally just walk through that space completely unencumbered. That doesn't mean it is not happening. And I find that mm. quite often on, on, on trails, you know, like when people want to push through um, to this idea of like trying to con- connect the footsteps or whatever the internal logic is. And, and you, do, you do need to have an internal logic for it to make sense. Absolutely. Um, but then when that comes to shadow or overshadow, um, to a point where like you're ignoring like people are like willing to walk through a forest fire because they want to complete that section and, and that's mm-hmm. like that's completely ludicrous if you, if you can't at that point step back and say what am i doing what am i doing out here and and how what is my stake in all of this um and that's and and, and that's a that's a degree of like your privileges i suppose uh, whether you get to ignore it or you take a step and say okay like there's something going on there that i'm part of that is way bigger than me um what is this? Yeah, um, and it's, mm. it's tough out there, and it's tough out there. Like the last two years, I think it's been a, it's been very difficult for people uh, a lot, and um, um, everything, everybody from health bodies to the CDC and everybody else is like acts actively asking people to spend a little bit more time outside in quote unquote wilder places or remoter places, not to be in contact with uh, with the COVID restrictions and. Um, you know, people needed that outside connection to to cope with them to what was going on, and and I think we'll be doing that for the next several more years, and who knows how many years really the impact, the real impact of of um, twenty early twenty twenty onwards. Mm. Um, so you see, I I definitely noticed that uh, in the last time around on the trail, the trail culture uh, has always is always shifting, but. The, the shift this time was like pretty market, like um, record numbers of people are trying to go out there and trying to push through and then um, finding out that um, nature has other plans. Like this year on the PCT is a pretty, pretty good example. Um, the snowpack is really high. And, um, and I keep reading articles about like, I thought I had the PCT hike figured out and then, and then nature humbled me or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and it's a, um, and it's great, like if that's your first hike, and, and that's kind of what happens, like you, you figure it out. But if you've done this often enough, at this point, uh, I think uh, those of us who have done a few more hikes to really, really start it up and to start realizing like, okay, what does this mean to, to walk outside? And what is my role in here like that? Is it just about me having a completely self-involved experience? Or do you have now a responsibility, an even more, um, more acute sense of responsibility uh, because you have done it a couple of times to to be responsible for your furry footsteps and where you take those footsteps and how you take them which leads me to the obvious question of what is it that you see as your responsibility when you take those footsteps and 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 how you take them oh um it's never one thing um and always i mean uh, i try to be mindful as much as i can that especially now, like just how much of a financial, mental, gender, like the fact that I'm able, like all of these, Mm. all of these attributes allows me to do these things in a way that like other people can't. And I'm I'm certainly like, I know the sacrifices that I've had to make uh, to make this happen for the last, last decade. Um, But now like, you know, um, 
on the PCT, like I, when the fires were happening, I was just really fortunate. I would be fortunate when I saw pools of water where I wouldn't see one. I would, I was grateful to find patches of snow on, on dry deserts. I was grateful to find, um, so a little, little anecdote. Somebody one day asked me like, what is it that I'm most grateful for on the trail? And I just, I couldn't, without thinking, I said like, it's that little bit of breeze that you get on a really hot day. Um, uh, I'm grateful to be there and know, uh, know the ways in which I'm privileged to be there and in like very close proximity to like in the ways in which how many, so many people can't. And they would, even if it's just for the quote unquote escape reasons, they just would rather be there than where they are right now. Like, uh, I'm always, always aware of that. And, and of course, like, I'm always aware of like, um, um, on whose historical footsteps I'm walking on and, and who's going to come after me. I'm always thinking about that. Do you find that you carry um, a, a greater sense of responsibility or um, as walking as a person of color on, on these trails in such a stark minority? Um, do you find that that comes with a, an, an added sense of responsibility for yourself in, in, in any way, not in terms of, well, yeah, in any way, in, in terms of interactions with other people on a day-to-day -day basis or in terms of representing um, a culture or in terms of does, does it, yeah, does it come with a, an added sense of responsibility in any way for you? Um, I, sometimes if you, um, I do feel like I don't have a choice in the matter. Uh, so um, it was definitely true in the in, in earlier when I was uh, when there was a lot less people of color on the trail at least that I could notice that the landscape quite literally the the demographic has changed. There are there it is cool to see more and more uh, very very different people from very very different backgrounds and abilities and aptitudes being on trail these days. Uh, it's really neat to see. Um, so the conversations that I was starting to get embroiled in, uh, in the 10 years ago on the AT is very different from what I would have for now on, um, on this, on, on this, on the PCT or like the CDT on the, or on the Arizona trail, for example, I think, um, again, the, the politics also, like um, when I say politics, I mean, literal election politics, for example, in the U S and Canada has shifted a lot of those conversations to sometimes in, in really, really shrill tones as well. Like, um, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what my hiking experience would have been like um, in the early 20, 2000s if I would, that was the first time I started out hiking. Um, mm. I can say that uh, in terms of what you're talking about responsibilities, like um, once Akuna, Akuna Will Robinson is a veteran. He's one of the, one of the first um, African-Americans to um, Triple Crown. It was in mm. 2019. Uh, when he did that, uh, when he did his uh, triple crown on the CTT and the AT and the PCT, he, him and I were talking about once, and uh, he told me sometimes uh, as a black man on that trail, like you mentioned that, like sometimes you really have to watch what you're going to say to someone who's being fill in the blank, mm. because it's not just a matter of how that person is going to react to you. 
but how that person is going to treat somebody coming behind him because of the encounter that he had with this person. So mm. as much as you might have the urge to like stand up and um, be confrontational, be friendly, be whatever. And mm. you also have to might be mindful that like, is this, is this interaction, how is this interaction going to impact someone's coming behind me? And that, mm. that's a calculus. That's a lot of, it's a lot of thing to worry about. Like through hiking is hard enough and you just want to go for a walk <laughs> for 2000 miles. But when you have to start thinking about like um, um, the impact that like your words, your action, your very specific act, words and actions, how that might have ramifications for people who have gone or come behind you strictly because of how somebody else perceives you. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a thing, you know, that's a thing that um, for sure, if you're, if you, if you don't ever have to experience that, um, then you don't know what that way is like. You, you don't just know what it's know. like. But if you do, yeah. then, um, then it, and you just you don't ever, ever not to get to unshed that weight either. Uh, you always have to, is this the moment that I'm going to stand up for myself? Is this the moment that I'm, I'm going to have to literally watch and say, if I picked a fight here or if I did this this way, like, is this person then going to do something else to somebody else coming behind me? Um, mm. and, and it's a, and it's a, your health and safety is at stake at that point, not just yeah. your mental health, but like you're somebody else's, like you're, you're now directly responsible for somebody else with, without, with no control over what happens on the other side. And it's perennial. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's awesome to hear that the landscape is changing, that the demographic is changing. Um, that's really encouraging. Um, one of the things in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death, you you wrote an awesome blog article for us um, titled Diversity is Not a Hashtag. And I remember one of the points that you made was, um, and it's it's almost this, the same point that, you, that you've been making framed in, in a different way in terms of not being able to step away from, from these things. Like you can try and escape these things, but they are real and they're, they're happening whether you want to acknowledge them or not. Um, but you made a point of people saying like, uh, I don't want to talk about politics or, or not even talk about politics necessarily, not even, um, but, uh, you know, I came out here to be, to have sort of an apolitical experience to escape the, the burdens of, um, of this type of stuff that we all deal with um and especially in the states over the last you know seven years i guess um and the point that you made which was well i mean that's that's easy for you to say but but my life and existence is inherently has become inherently politicized um, I'm not sure, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm not sure if that was exactly how you expressed it. Um, but, but that point really struck home to me. And I think the example that you've just made, um, is a really good example of that, of, of, um, exactly that, that idea. It would be easy for someone to perceive your, to perceive you as having a mission as sort of an, an advocate for people of color on, on the trail or, um, 
Is that how you see yourself? Do, or do you just see yourself as a guy who goes out to hike, who has to deal with the these the difficulties of of the the realities of of racial dynamics? Um, I don't necessarily see. It's certainly not how I set out to be. In fact, um, uh, it wasn't until almost halfway through the AT um, Pine Grove Furnace when I Pine Grove Furnace, by the way, it's in Pennsylvania. Just um, um, it's it's reputed to be a station on the Underground Railroad, unofficial station on the Underground Railroad. And up until then, I've met any, maybe two or three through hikers of color. Um, one of them, maybe two of them were actually black. Um, wasn't exactly sure if they're African-American or not, but two black hikers. And I was sitting in there. Um, it was a very dark night. Um, June bugs or lightning bugs are all around. It was, it was pretty amazing, incredible. And I was in this amazing old historical place and I had just walked through Civil War monuments and I, and I just couldn't shake this feeling of just walking after like Antietam Hall, which is sort of like a, a massive, massive Civil War battleground. And, and you couldn't, like, I'm a history buff, so I just couldn't shake the feeling. Like, I, I kept, I kept imagining like the, the scene, the Civil War scene are all around me. Like, like watching this beautifully, you know, beautiful park which was probably would have been just covered covered in like human gore at one point in time. And I was walking through it and, I, and it was surreal to juxtapose my, you know, what I would say at the time, like literally like being on a thousand mile fried chicken and beer pub crawl that I was having from Georgia all the way at this point. And then to have this like, the past, it's it's so concurrent. It was so there, and you and you walk through that heaviness, and whether it's perceived or real or whatever, it doesn't matter. But you know, people died in that spot badly, and you know people died in that spot badly, fighting for something that they believed in, whatever that might have been. And you're walking through that space, and then you sit in this one spot where supposed to be where somebody was trying to get their freedom. Literally, um, I'm walking through this quote-unquote unencumbered and here was this particular person who would have sat in that trapdoor cellar underneath who didn't have that feeling whatsoever and I, I lowered myself into that little trap hole and and it was completely dark and just, just a little it wasn't freedom that I felt there like it wasn't it wasn't it was just terror it was just sitting there in that darkness surrounded by the silence and, and June bugs it was terror I could not appreciate the beauty of of a summer night with oak trees full of lightning bugs i couldn't i was i was just sad and angry and it was, and it was so pervasive and and i have really good memories of june bugs growing up in sri lanka because this might spend a time that i was lying in the fields with my dad and, and they would come up and then all of a sudden i realized and this was a point later told to me by somebody else who'd gone through um, the Syrian civil war related to June bugs. Was it like, we'd only see June bugs when there was no fighting. Like they wouldn't come out if, if the bullets were being fired. And this kid was like going through a, a kayaking trip, the Syrian uh, refugee kid that another group that I work with uh, called the 
uh, refugee adventure and education challenges in our organization working with uh, um, refugee children, taking them outside and stem cell education. Now. And he was relating the story about how excited that he was to see June bugs or lightning bugs uh, in the wild because the last time that he had seen them is before before the bombs started dropping. And, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember having that reaction to lightning bugs in that cellar 10 years ago. And then sitting now after having heard that story and remembering like all my war trauma and, and going through that battlefield. And I'm just like, and that was the year that uh, the Warrior Hike started on the Appalachian Trail. Warrior Hike is a, it's a program out there for, to send um, 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 veterans with uh, PTSD. They send them out with gear to hike so they can walk off the war, which is essentially sort of the, the, the you know, if you were to find the beginning for the Appalachian Trail, Earl, Earl Schaefer just walked the trail. He was trying to walk off the war. So, like even the modern history of the Appalachian Trail proper as a through hike begins at a moment before it was a trail. Like it begins in the middle of a traumatic experience. It comes into being as a trail, as a concept, as a metaphor, as a process, as a journey, because of the history, personal and a larger history that goes into, sh into even shaping it as such. And here you are, right in the middle of it. And you can have your 2,000 mile chicken wings and beer every trail town. I did that and it was great. And I was grateful for it. But it's, it's also this other history. It's also a history of war and trauma and, 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 and the ability for someone to, to be quote unquote free in a very real sense, especially in the US, especially on the AT. And I didn't get to really sit and grapple with that literally until I, a thousand miles later, it hit me like the force of, you know, lack of a very obvious pun, like it, the weight of trauma sitting in that, that hole. And it was sudden and, and, and I haven't been able to shake it since. I would like to think that I walked uh, to to make space and hold space for all the traumatic things that I've witnessed and experienced since since uh, as a little kid uh, from war and dislocation and everywhere. But um, just because I go on a trail doesn't mean those things go away. Like they become more and more palpable at you, and the more you start paying attention to them, like and realize just how much is untold. And how many of what we see on Instagram and media, like and even those people who say that they're doing, that's that's the scaffold of what happens on a trail. What's going on inside for those people? It's completely different, and and, and won't always make the make the the trending videos um, on Instagram or social media. But um, it's a it's a challenging space. And as you said earlier, you don't ever get to you don't get to walk away from who you are. Uh, it'll catch up to you at some point. Sure. And you don't, yeah, I guess that's, you don't get to walk away from, from where you are either, I guess, um, as part of the point, wherever you are, there will always be things um, that, well, reminders, as you say, of things gone before that that 
might trigger specific memories or specific feelings, specific ways of relating to the the suffering of of other people. Um, yeah, really interesting. I, I've I, I can't stop thinking about. I assume that June bugs are what we in South Africa would have called fireflies. Yes, they are. Um, and I also have a similar. I remember being in in the Kruger National Park in South Africa, in a riverbed, on a, a the very opposite end of of the experience of fireflies from from uh, yours, but being in a game drive vehicle in the Kruger National Park, um, where the only way you can really experience the area is from the back of a of a vehicle. Uh, well, you can go on guided hikes, but you're absolutely not allowed to just hike through through the reserve on your own because it's just too dangerous. Um, but this it's also a childhood memory that will always be with me is this particular moment of driving into this river valley and the driver switching off the, the car and the lights and everything and just sitting in silence. And after a few moments of the sound of the engine fading away, all of these flashing lights just f- filling the whole of the of the river valley, um, and yeah, something something spectacular about that sort of imagery for me. Yeah, as well. I, yeah, I think the June bugs, you know, it, it's a bit incidental to this conversation that we're having, but for sure, yeah, bugs, I think it's a it's a pretty neat one. Like I I look at fog the same way on trail. Like I think mm. fog for me, like uh, it erases all contours. Like if there's ever a time that you think that you're tram traveling, it's walking through somewhere. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't even have to be the mountains. It can be downtown Vancouver. Walk through it in the fog, and you you can't. I think you'd have to you'd have to be pretty distracted to not feel that you've stepped through some sort of time portal that uh, it dissolves all contours it sort of like it dissolves that time and space in a little way and i feel that on the on the trail that i love being when there's fog around and same way in the lightning bugs um you know this is a, this is a creature literally just emitting electricity out there mm. in the still of the night mm. and there's something very ethereal about it um mm. and, uh, and it's got a way of like start tugging at tugging at these discordant threads that are constantly running in you um um, yeah, it's like you can, I suppose, you can choose to step away something, but you're always walking with that, whatever it is that you try to step away from. There's no... Mm. And perhaps that is what is so special about something like uh, uh, an extended through hike. I mean, you're spending three months on trail? Yeah, three to four months, depends on Three trail. to four months. Is that in those... In all that time, you are, um, you know, when you said fog, I thought smoke as well, almost the opposite end of the same thing. But instead of being sort of, uh, it has the same sort of contour erasing effect, but in like a red and, and hot way rather than in like a white and cool way. Um, it's almost like a uh, warning, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's like um, intonation. And so, yeah, 
And so I'm thinking like, you know, spending um, that amount of time surrounded by things which can't help but um, make you experience your life in in a sort of very real and present way, right? Because it's not, you know, you're never going to get that same, well, maybe not never, but it's you don't have the the distractions of life that can prevent you from um living memories and experiences and having sort of physical and 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 emotional um reactions to the world around you and and those things are real it's why we have um it's why things are spooky if they you know it's why we use fog machines in ghost stories you know, is that specific um, physical stimuli uh, produce specific emotional reactions uh, and results with, within us? And so perhaps being outside, surrounded by these types of things all day, all night for four months helps us to move through the, the things that we... Um, that we need to move through. Maybe that's the, you know, I, I, I remember, I mean, I kind of started off by saying, by mentioning trauma and I guess trauma is kind of a, a, a common thread through the, the conversation and through the, I'm sure the stories of a lot of people. I had a, one of my best friends passed away a couple of years ago from cancer during COVID actually. Um, and he was back in South Africa. Um, and I didn't have, I couldn't go home and, say goodbye to him you know um and after he died i went and hiked the the wonderfuka trail on out there on the island um and there was something about looking up at the trees blowing in the wind you know i had been hearing the the needles rustling in, in these swaying trees above me. And there was this one particular moment in which I looked up and just saw the sort of dizzying tops of trees swaying around in the wind. Um, and it kind of, it kind of, there was something about that moment, I think, that, that, um, I don't know what it was in particular, but, but triggered sort of an emotional release in, in myself um, that I really needed, um, you know, dealing with all the stuff that I was dealing with. Um, anyway, I don't know if that's why to some extent we love being out there as much as we do, everybody, whether we know it, know it or not, um, or whether we can acknowledge it or not, but yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Paul. I'm glad that you were able to able to connect with yourself that way. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what it is. Like you become hyper aware of like what's going on for you, mm. and um, mm. like your surroundings provide context for that. Um, now, when you were talking about it, like I, I this like the fog and, and the, some of these things that I think about quite a lot of them. It's like, why is it that staring into a fire or a sunset? produces uh, a feeling and a sort of this 
ephemeral feeling of uh, expansiveness within yourself or, or whatever or closeness um you know like we can say for certain with like 100 percent certainty i would i suppose like under there that a human being on this planet about eighty thousand years ago wasn't looking at another human being through a computer screen mm. but they were watching a fire if there's one connective thread that we have to the very first life forms on this planet up until the present day it's not necessarily with things that we have but like these these things that seem to endure that has the way of like bringing us back to this primordial timelessness of all things some things have always been here some things mm -hmm. will always be here and no matter how many modern trappings that we will have like we, we we move through that space and and those things move through with us alongside us and every now and then you get a reminder of the timelessness of it all and like how much of what we have uh, the trappings you know the 24-hour clock our work schedules the instagram message whatever that might be like how much of that is um it's um there's this impermanence of all things and in a strange way like um the fleetingness of it like this is the fleeting bit but there are some other things so that, that are they have just been just been here and you get to connect and be part of it and then um and for a brief moment like you feel yourself understood to yourself for sure and it's there is something about that particular being able to sit and um you know we, we were talking earlier about perspective and the role of you know you 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 gain this perspective by by actually spending putting in all the steps you know maybe it makes you maybe it's a moment of being alone on a trail in a forest surrounded by ancient trees or the only person as far as you can see on a desert scape and getting that real sense of like being small in the world you know um and your your own impermanence but I, I, yeah i like i like the that mentioned specifically of fire and that universal thing of sitting and watching fire um and that as you say sort of primordial um there's something about it that just feels kind of right to everybody there's something about sitting looking into a fire that feels comforting in its um in in its enduring nature i guess and or it's con it's con constants um even though it itself is a fleeting thing mm -hmm. right the fire each flame is is an is a reaction of energy which is there for only an instance and and then it's gone um but the enduring nature of fire itself uh is something that everybody can commonly something that i think of quite often maybe it's just me but i love looking at a river or a waterfall and you always think of like you see a river as a a constant it's a flowing solid i mean it's not solid it's liquid obviously but it's um you think of it as as one unit like a homogenous thing but something that always i love to think about looking at a river is that each part of that river is only there in that one instance as it's flowing past and it starts somewhere else 
and it goes somewhere else. And even though the river is this constant flow um, that is always give or take, always there, each part of that river is gone in an instance. It's over there, and then it's there, and then it's gone. Um, yeah, it's uh, the the sort of the fleeting and permanent nature of of things that can happen sort of simultaneously. Yeah, um, I suppose like you call it the paradox of uh, connecting to the eternal through the through the transient. Hmm. Um, yeah, but um, you know, um, there's a Canadian scholar, uh, Indigenous scholar, um, and writer. Her name is uh, Leanne Perez-Masaki Simpson. She wrote this beautiful book, um, an argument essentially called uh, As We Have Always Done, which is um, a running common not trend if you're um, trying to identify a running trend in any indigenous politics these days. Um, it's it, it's always come down to as we have always done. Um, mm. We're not trying to restart something. We're, it's a continuity. It's, it's a continuity. And that's what we all trying to do, like live and be here on this planet and try to keep it a continuity. Hmm. That's a very different broad topic on its own. <laughs> but 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 totally relevant. Um, you know, thinking about the thing that jumps to mind immediately is sort of fire management policies, you know, like we should learn from indigenous people and cultures. One of the key things that that have time and again that I come up that I've come across um, with my you know, statedly fairly limited interactions, but fairly involved uh, within that limited interaction with uh, indigenous communities, particularly in New Zealand and and uh, some in the West Coast here, um, is there is a strong sense of reciprocity that goes into your day-to-day life. Um, there's never a sense of, like, you can't take this idea of like let's take like national parks for example um, as the creation of the national parks so national parks especially in north america uh, comes to be quote unquote created it designates first of all the wilderness space it declares at its genesis declares what has been home where people had lived hunted lived and, and had a reciprocal relationship with stewarding the land and in turn the land stewarding themselves, having establishing that equilibrium for thousands and thousands of years. And all of a sudden we get this uh, set of laws and an infrastructure that designates what was home as wilderness, as if this is a place where no one has been, but for specific reasons, right? Like for specific reasons, uh, predominantly to have a hunting and fishing club for, um, and, and this is a quote like from from some of the texts that I've read, like hunting and fishing club for like the uh, quote Anglo-American sportsman types. Yeah. So idea of preserving the landscape so that people can go hunt and fish. This this was the founding principle behind finding a national park preservation, mm-hmm. and you always have to ask what is it being preserved and conserved for uh, versus like. The idea of like reciprocity, like the, the newest established um, national park in Canada, the Tidenini National Park up in, uh, up in um, just northern Canada here, like near Slate Lake, like there, um, you know, as you know, you can't take anything from a national park. You can't harvest lumber. You can't you can't shoot animals. Uh, that's mm. it's it's easy 
and uh, and historical anachronism to think of it as a conservation measure for the betterment of the environment. Like it's pretty easy to fall into that trap, but that's never been the intention. The intention so that like indigenous people weren't taking that. Indigenous people weren't taking the fur and shooting the animals and, and hunting the animals or taking the land. It's to prevent them so that, that you can have this very specific type of people can go do just that. That in any park, on the other hand, allows for reciprocal harvesting or reciprocal um, stewardship of the land. Where like the point is never that you're never going to take from the land, but it's that that you're going to take from the land in such a way that it fosters mutual continuity, not to a point that you're not um, that you can't you just you just put a full stop stop to it and you can't do anything whatsoever. It's that that you don't take it to a point where it threatens your own existence. Mm. That's the model that we have outside of that. But when I say something over indigenous people, uh, particularly when um, Leanson's text talks about as they've always done, that's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a type of reciprocal sovereignty within yourself and within the environment that you live in such that you live in a sovereign state where sovereignty doesn't mean um, our liberal ideas of freedoms and freedoms of movement or speech or any of that. It is that that your own existence isn't threatened by the way in which you live. You maintain a continuity at all times so that you continue to live. You continue to exist in this planet in harmony, in reciprocal harmony, in reciprocal give and take that doesn't compromise neither you nor where are you taking it from. Mm. And she does this with this brilliant story about um, um, the beavers. Um, and she did actually the Ideas podcast on on the beavers and the brilliance of beavers, it's called, and she, and she talks about um, this ethics of um, of um, reciprocity that indigenous cultures, particularly in North America, but like pretty much I would argue throughout the world, have maintained for so long prior to colonization or colonial mm. impact. It strikes me that those ideas of as we have always done and and sort of as it has always been, you know, are it's two sides of the same coin. Perhaps you know we exist as we always have done. Um, in this place, which is as it has always been, uh, you know, a, a home, the the planet, the place where we all live. Um, so we, we should continue as we have always done in order to live in this place as it has always been, because it's it sustains us. You know, this there's we can live in this way as we always have because the place can sustain us as long as we continue to live, live in this way. And we don't, you know, as long as it is, as it has always been, we can live as we always have done. The Maori people uh, in New Zealand, like, they were, they were simply there, like, um, uh, uh, land and people as one. That It's not that the land is the context for people, that, that there's mm. just no people without the land, period. Mm. The land is and the people and the people is the land and and that's uh, there there's no separation here land as people as one um i don't want to defend as uh, uh would be like one, one term but there are multiple ways in which that's articulated and like uh, the maori way of looking at things but yeah it's um yeah the it's yeah the reciprocity i think um it, it's it's misunderstood like what that what that means like responsible ethical reciprocity um, there is a give and a take. There, there's always a calculus involved, and the calculus is um, is one of 
yeah, continuity in existence as opposed to sheer extraction. So I wonder if there's a model for, I wonder if we could, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about how when you go on along through hike, you do so very much in the way of, um, you know, you're interacting with the land around you, but in, in very much not in as people have always <laughs> done, you know, um, you've got a whole lot of, um, high tech ultralight gear you might have, and maybe you've got free stride meals. Maybe you just on ramen noodles. Um, but how much of, you know, there's this ability to connect with the place. And I, I guess that's also what a lot of people are looking for is, you know, it may be to deal with, um, it may be both running, like escaping from the world that, that they inhabit on a day-to-day basis and the, the sort of, um, you know, general uh, burdens of a of a modern life, you could describe it, but it's equally running to trying to re- reestablish a connection with being outside, with the natural world, which so many people have lost to such a great extent. Um, and yet there's so much of the through-hike experience, which is c- kind of... And I guess maybe it should be the merits of it should be um, assessed or it should be assessed on its own merits rather than trying to compare it to something like living in true reciprocity with with the land. Um, I guess this is all a garbled way of saying, is there anything about the through hiking experience that could be changed or that could be adjusted in order to help people come to a more of a, or maybe it isn't through hiking. Maybe there's, there should be some other type of experience um, to help people come to more of a fundamental understanding of their connection to the land. And, and, you know, that's to help break down that separation between people and, and, and the planet. Um, I think it happens. I think it happens on hikes, whether um, you're fully cognizant of it or not. Like you can't, you can't not help it. Like you know, I'm, I've never been a like a super speed hiker. Like I hike fast, uh, but I'm not out there to set um, you know fastest known time hikes. Or uh, I'm only bringing that up to suggest that like I don't know what that experience is like, but mm-hmm. I can if I were to hazard a guess. I would imagine there is an element of, you know, what we call flow state in it mm. that's mm. pervasive in any time that we're able to, you know, what is flow state, right? It's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's a, such a fluid term, but we all know roughly that it is one of those moments, sometimes prolonged, sometimes fleeting, um, always impermanent. Uh, feeling that you get when you get the sense that your body, that your mind, your total, your total being, your total epistemological, physiological being is in tune with something. 
Mm. It's just not with even with something that is just in tune, mm. that is tuned to and tuned with, and it's just simply in tune. Uh, and that that's the best way I can explain flow. And that flow state experience happens to to everyone on a through hike. I think it happens to pretty much everybody on on life. Like you know, like if I were to get really like theoretical about it, like there's a, an interesting book William James has written it's called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, in it, like he's mm. tried to describe uh, what he calls a um, what do you call it? Um, like utter complete euphoria, um, where people have this like out of body experience, and he has like three characteristics. That's like these are the these are the ways in which that happens, and one of them is that like uh, which always stuck with me is that it's both ineffable and has a nomadic quality. Um, so basically, like, so it's, he's saying like a mystical experience, that's what he calls it, because he's looking at it from like a religious perspective. And he's saying that uh, it's got a noetic quality and it's ineffable, meaning it can never be put into words in a way that it makes some sense to somebody else, but it, but it has absolute sense of truth to it as it's happening to you. And that's, that's all there is to it. On the one hand, it sets itself up to be like, well, if that's the case, then like any, any experience it's just is it just completely subjective probably but anyone who have experienced it know that at some point that did that happen they might not even be able to identify it but they know in the course of the activity that even if it happened and it happens on through hikes and i think that's the beauty of it like um and the more and more you're cognizant more and more you force yourself to be aware of your footsteps to the landscape or or to the to your heartbeat to your to your your thoughts like be aware of like the all the thoughts, the intrusive ones, the good ones, the bad ones. It's all you. It's like it's all coming from you. No one's putting those thoughts in your head. It's all you. Like your 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 mental being is your physical being, and, it, and it's happening at all times. And you, the more you're trying to be aware of that in the activity that you're doing, in the pursuit of whatever it is, you know, it's work, through hiking, or whatever. In through hiking, it's a little bit more obvious because you created this, as you say, like an artificial parameter around which something that we're all trying to do. And it becomes uh, the opportunity for that happening more because you've now, you know, mentally or uh, um, literally just stripped away some of the distractions. But it happens to us mm-hmm. all the time. And I think on, on through hikes, um, the more the more you force yourself to be aware, the more yourself force yourself to quote unquote meditate or, you know, just to, just to be in, <laughs> to be present. Uh, to all the mm. to all the words that we use in our daily daily life that people tell us to do now for our mental health like the more you try to do all those things that, that you realize that like yeah like you are at every point like you you're you're hoping you're learning you're wanting to connect to yourself and and if mm. connecting um richard vagamese wrote this book called starlight and in it like he talks about the journey of the sandman going through watching animals as taking nature photography and he talks about it this way like watching the wolf in the quiet of the night crouched uh, with the camera watching it through that, that very intentional act of looking at this other life form through this contraption in this artificial scenario brings to him to understand himself better mm-hmm. in observing something outside of him and that process, I don't think you can put that into words, but we all know what that's like. Hmm. You've just, um, I've always 
you know, I, I told just a little anecdote about being in the Kruger National Park as a child. And you've just explained to me in a way why being in the Kruger National, I would always sort of joke that uh, the closest thing my family has to church, right? Our version of spiritual experiences was going to the Kruger National Park once a year and having that exact experience of sitting quietly in a car watching wild animals through binoculars um, and that exact sort of sense of being being present um, in in that moment and, and in that exercise and pursuing that exercise just for the sake of it as well. Um, so there you go. You've helped me understand. You've un- unlocked a little, <laughs> a little explanation to, to why those were, were such sort of quasi spiritual or not quasi spiritual experiences for us, I guess. And um, one thing that I, that interests me about this, about all this is the dynamic between being alone and having that time, um, and, ha- and, and putting that effort into, um, sort of intentionally, uh, giving space to to your awareness of your physical experience um, and your surroundings and and um, and the the dynamic of the social element of through hikes, which seems to be such an important thing for so many people. Um, and I guess when you're hiking for four months, you have time to chat to people and and take the time on your own um i wonder yeah if you had had anything to say on on that in terms of those dynamics in particular oh, what where you if um, you see a, a particular value personally um to either side of that perhaps yeah. false dichotomy uh, i suppose like i'm a bit of an introvert in some a lot of lives um i, I mean trail communities it's it's a really it can be a great, great source of uh, linear family. Um, and I'm grateful for a, a lot of the connections that have come specifically because I started hiking. Um, it's unlikely that we, I don't know, but like I feel like it would be unlikely that we'd be having this conversation if I didn't decide that I wasn't going to get out of grad school and go for a walk on the AT. <laughs> accidentally walking into that store in, um, in North Carolina that sold sole footbeds. Uh, which pretty much changed the way I hike. Uh, I haven't hiked a single mile without them since, like, you know, like 200 miles in, and they've got a pair of soles, and eight, almost 8,000 miles later, I'm still here with them. Um, and that's a really fascinating thread. Like, and we can only make sense of those kind of stories by looking backwards, right? Like, every, you, can, you can throw a connected thread if you're willing to look back to anything, really. Um, mm. But the exciting bit, uh, the, the, the value is that like, you don't know how your interaction with a specific moment in, in place and space and with another person will have consequences or ramifications for yourself and that person. And through is really beautiful that way because it exposes you to such a large array of people. Uh, I certainly would have never met um, not in terms of distances, but the types of people that I've met and the types of connections that I was able to have without having that as a 
there's an avenue to meet them. And there are tons of ways in which that happens, you know, in the professional world, you call it networking. But um, out, out, uh, when you're out hiking, when you have a shared experience that is that has moments of pain, and I think um, Peggy Phelan is a theorist, and, and she talks about like uh, ontology of performance, uh, meaning it's a really complicated term, but essentially what she's talking about is that, like, how do we exist in this world? And she says that, like, if we at all understand ourselves, it's never, it's never in isolation, but always as what she would call in an in a intersubjective moment, meaning you can only understand yourself through interaction with something outside of yourself, another self, mm. even if that self just happens to be yourself, an aversion or iteration, as she would call it, of yourself. As um, um, And then for her, like, uh, one of the things that resists this sort of um, um, the transience of existence is pain. Like for her, literally pain. Like she's like, pain is not transient. Like you know, like the physical pain, uh, it leaves a trace. Like you know it. And and in a through hiking uh, war, uh, anything that 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 can be that has that potential for injury and harm binds you to places in a very special way i think um because hmm. on the one hand you have this fleeting experience um that that's that that's being forged on the other hand you have this very real thing that you know that just happened to you that you know that's that's, that's probably going to happen to somebody else um dr morgan would have talked about it like foot pain is a thing like blisters are a thing these are these aren't things that i don't have to like explain to you as to what's happening that m memory of that pain, however individual of pain, um, personal it might be, it's a, it's a it's a it's a point of convergence for you, and, and a breakdown of this like hyper individualism that we have ourselves. Like you get to really feel that you're having a shared communal um, experience that is both you and not you and everybody around you. And through anything is special that way. It's like it's innate. Um, I suppose war is the same way. I suppose anything that involves, and as um, Peggy Fulan say, anything that leaves you with the trace that the inassimilable, uh, inassimilable, I can't pronounce that word. It's such a hard word. <laughs> uh, something that cannot be assimilated into just yeah, only yeah. yourself, just yourself, mm. that you have to recognize that not only yourself, but yourself in relation to somebody else. And that happens so often on the trail. And it's, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see yourself reflected in other people's eyes, see yourself reflected in other people's stories, and, and they see themselves reflected in your story. And you get to, and you get to have that shared story uh, grounded by this thing that is like the closest thing that comes to being something that's very permanent, which is literally the painful aspects of hiking. Like, hiking is not glamorous. Like, it's a lot of days are painful. A lot of the days are hurt. But then you don't get to be mm. better at it. You just you just learn to make that part of the of the much larger story for yourself and uh, and the community and uh, for sure it's uh um as much as like the the very superficial implications of bubbles and bubbles are large collection of hikers who congregate at one given spot um, mm. uh, there's there's value there's definitely value in having shared moments with other people helps you understand yourself better for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah, I think we kind of need to wrap this up sure. um, as much as I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> um, 
Thanks very much, Amethan. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else that you would like to speak to in particular or mention. Oh, no, thank you for, you know, like responding to that email a long time ago. It was uh, not yeah. much of a person to reach out like that. And my, my partner, she asked me, maybe you should, because he liked it so much. And um, so thanks for always, um, yeah, like for supporting me in that process, but also literally like, Foot pain is a real thing, and, um, and <laughs> you know, like it's it's a, it's it's real, and there's so many. And Dr. Morgan would have said this, and like any other hiker, like it's a you don't have to suffer needlessly out there. <laughs> the suffering is inevitable, but you don't have to suffer needlessly. So thanks for thanks for literally supporting me on that front all these years. Awesome, yeah, I love that. The, you will suffer, but you don't have to. You can cut down the suffering. There are ways to minimize your suffering for sure. Um, yeah, no, well, geez, we, we totally happy to support you and, um, yeah, love seeing all that you do. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah. And we look forward to do, do you, what do you have coming up? Do you have anything in particular that you're doing this year? I know you spent some time tree planting. I do. Oh, that was the year before last, eh? Hey? Yeah, that was doing uh, just. Yeah. I, I had to try it just to see. I, I will. I will be so happy knowing that I put seventy thousand trees in the ground. Um, you know, but uh, it's one of my. I did that. I've done that. That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, that is amazing. Wow. Yeah, I have a. Um, I have a, a really cool opportunity coming up with uh, Sawyer, who's a, who also mm. do some great work. Um, did a lot of. So we'll be going down to uh, a tiny South or Pacific Island in Oceania um, to set up some water filters for this community uh, way wow. out in the middle of the ocean. Now. So I'm wow. super stoked to go and to go Amazing. help out with that project. And, um, and hopefully if, if things line up, um, I, I don't want to even have to say it out loud because it never happens sometimes, but maybe hike the Hey Duke trail later this year. Awesome. Wow. Fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I'm happy to give a little shout out to Soya. I mean, that sounds like a great trip, but um, my favorite piece of gear, other than my sole footbeds, of course, is um, my Soya mini filter as well, which I first came across um, thanks to you and Selzen, Selzen Akatsali, who's also a Soya ambassador. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Soya. Um, that sounds like an awesome trip. Um Great. Well, thank you very much. And right. uh, good luck on those endeavors. And yeah, have right. an awesome day. Talk soon. Cheers, Ampa. Cheers. Good luck. Bye bye. Ah.